Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge. So when I was growing up, uh, one thing that our family did a lot of was eat dinner together. That was kind of a high priority. We weren't able to hit every single night by any means, but that was kind of the goal. That's what we're shooting for. And one thing that my mom was really good at doing was she was good at spending a fair amount of time in the kitchen to prepare very good tasting and also generally good for us meals, right? Because sometimes, I'm going to be honest, good tasting and good for you don't always go together. You guys with me on that? But she would do that. She would make good and tasting meals that also were good for us. And so uh, generally speaking, it was very, very good and we were thankful for it. But on this particular evening, we sat down to dinner and it was my, my mom and my dad and my brother, my younger brother Bryce and I, he's four years younger than me, and myself. So there's the four of us sitting at the dinner table. And apparently, I don't know why, because I don't even remember what we had for dinner that night, but apparently my brother Bryce and I, we did not, we were not excited about what was set on the table in front of us. Um, and we started complaining about it. I'm sure this never happens in your family, but in our family this happened, all right? And so Bryce and I, we were complaining about it. And, and I think, I, I don't know, but I, I think usually when we'd complain, we'd probably kind of land the plane and we'd be done with it. You know, we'd voice our opinion and then we'd move on. But apparently this night we didn't do that because we kept going and eventually ended with my mom getting up from the table and leaving in tears. Oh, right? And some of you are like, oh. I know, this is a bummer of a story to start with, right? But she did. She walked off in tears. Now, here's the bad part about that. You know what we're left with? My brother and I with dad at the table. And mom left in tears. I can tell you it didn't go well, right? And so my dad made sure he kind of lit into us. Now, he didn't yell, and he didn't use any four-letter words, but he did use some other powerful words, and one of the most powerful words was actually not a four-letter word. It was a long word, and that word is, maybe you've used it sometimes with other people, it was disappointed. Oh, daggers everywhere, right? And he said, I'm very disappointed. And you could see it on his face that it was it was a level of disappointment that we don't normally see. And we're like, man, Bryce and I knew we messed up. And so I bring that story up to ask you this question. Have you ever messed up? Anybody ever made a mistake? Anybody ever messed up to the point where you felt shame? Like immediately you just wanted to you felt so much shame. You felt so much embarrassment. You felt little. You felt worthless. And you just, all you want to do was like crawl into a hole somewhere and disappear. Have you ever felt that? Man, I felt that in that moment. And my brother Bryce felt that in that moment. Well, today we're going to talk about God's promise to you when you mess up. What is God's promise to you when you mess up and you feel ashamed and embarrassed and little and worthless? What is God's promise to you? 
Well, welcome again to Northridge. Really glad you're here. Whether you're here in the room or online, we're just glad you're here. And we seriously want you to know, we've got a lot of you that are in the room for the very first time. You've never been to Northridge before. Thank you for taking a risk on us. So let me just say this. This is a safe place. This is a safe place for you to ask the honest questions because we all have questions about God, about faith, about the Bible, about Jesus. We all have questions. Don't act like you don't have questions. You have questions. I still have questions. This is a safe place for you to ask the questions. We want you to ask the questions, to dig in and discover. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time or you are not even sure where you're at with Jesus yet, this is a safe place. We want you to ask the questions you have, all right? So we're in a series called Troth. And this is a word that we use all the time. Just kidding. We never use this word. But this word is a word that means two people or two entities that have made a promise to be faithful to one another. That's what the word troth means. Two people that have made a promise to be faithful to one another. And so what we've been talking about in this series is God's promise to be faithful to us and our promise, what are our promises back to Him? Because it is not a one-way street. God has made a lot of promises to us, but there are some promises that we need to return back to Him. And that's really important. And so we're going to talk about that here today. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about God's promise to us when we mess up. In fact, it is the first big promise that God makes to all human beings. So this is kind of a big one. So what I want to do is I want to take you back to the first book of the Bible. If you'd like to follow along in your own uh, Bible or on your Bible app on your phone, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, all right? So let me set up the context. God has just created the world, okay? This is kind of a big deal. He's just created the world, and the world is perfect, and he has this perfect garden. It's called the Garden of Eden. And in that garden, he places the first two human beings, one man and one woman. Their names are Adam and Eve. One man, one woman. And he puts them in this perfect garden, perfect everything. And he tells the, to these two humans, he says, you cannot do one thing. It's the only thing that God told them that they can't do. He said, you can't, there's only one thing you can't do right now. And he said that one thing is you cannot eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat that fruit. Everything else, like, you're good to go. Like, just, life is awesome, but you can't eat the fruit. And so, Satan decides, he's going to use that one thing, of course, that God said you can't do, and he's going to tempt the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, first man and first woman, to eat the fruit from that tree. And so, Satan takes over this animal, You've heard of this animal. It's a serpent, a snake. And Satan decides to take over the serpent, the body of this snake. And he uses the serpent to speak to Adam and Eve. Now, I don't know about you, but if a snake starts talking to me, I know something different's going on. Right? I just have to determine, is this Satan or is this God? Well, okay, if it's a snake, based on Genesis, I think it might be the devil. All right? And so Satan is speaking to the two human beings. Now, the conversation is recorded between the woman and the serpent, but make no mistake, Adam was right there. Okay, the man was with her. It says this in Genesis. And the serpent says, Satan says to them, Did God really say you can't eat the fruit from that tree in the middle of the garden because, man, that fruit looks good? Did he really say you can't do that and that you would die? And Eve, the woman, responds and she says, yes, God said 
We can't eat the fruit, and if we eat the fruit, we'll die. And I want to read for you Satan's response to that response. Genesis 3, 4, and 5. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. Again, remember, this is Satan. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, this is the first lie in history. It's the first lie in history, and it's a big one. It's actually the same exact lie that you are being told today, right now. And that lie is this. The lie is, Satan is trying to convince you, he's trying to convince Adam and Eve in this story, he's trying to convince them that God is holding back something good from them. They, he's trying to convince them to believe that God is holding back something good, that God is holding out on them. Oh, he didn't say, he's not letting you eat that fruit. Well, that looks like the best fruit in the garden. You won't die. In fact, do you remember what Satan said to them? You will be like who? You'll be like God. And Adam and Eve, they believed the first lie because they heard the first part of the statement, but they missed the second part because Satan is crafty. He will get you with the first part, and then he swoops in from behind and gets you with the second one. The first part is you'll be like God. Well, I don't know about you, but how many people would be like, you're going to be like God, and we'd be like, ooh, I want to be like God. That's great. I sometimes act like God in my household anyway. So I'd like to be like God. Right? And, and Adam and Eve, they're like, ooh, I want to be like God, and you'll be like God. And Satan is actually telling the truth. He's just telling a half-truth. The truth is they're already exactly like God because God made them in His image. They're very much like God. They're already like God. It was the first half-truth. And then the second one was even worse. Do you remember what he said? You will be like God. And then he, what did he say? He says, you will know both good and evil. You know why that's really, really not good? Why that was also actually the truth? But it was a half-truth? Is because God was withholding something from them. You know what God was withholding? Evil. God was withholding evil from Adam and Eve. Because God didn't want them to experience evil. Which is exactly why he said, don't eat the fruit from the tree. Now some of you are like, why did he put the tree there? That's another sermon I've given a long time ago. But that sermon is basically this. God had to give them a choice, otherwise they would be forced to love God, which means it's not actual love. God gives every one of you a choice whether or not to eat the fruit. The choice is yours. He gives you the choice because he loves you. And he does the same for Adam and Eve. And so there's this first big lie, and it's the same lie that we're all being told. All sin flows from this lie. And that lie is, when we jump into sin, we believe that we know better than God. We believe that God is holding out on us. God, I believe I have a right to experience this. I have a right to drink this. I have a right to do this. I have a right to say this. I have a right to be this. Oh, I know I'm, I am hammering on culture right now. 
I hope you're picking it up. God says, no, (laughs) you don't have a right to do that. And I don't want you to do that. You know why? You know what happened when Adam and Eve tasted the fruit? Exactly what Satan said would happen, happened. They stopped knowing just good and they started knowing evil. You know what Genesis says happens? I'm not going to read it, but you know what it says? You can read it for yourself. Genesis chapter 3. Read the whole story for yourself. Immediately, as soon as they tasted the fruit, they felt shame, they felt embarrassed, and they felt fear. They had never felt those things before. Can you imagine a world without shame, embarrassment, or fear? Without evil? Without school shootings? I don't know about you, but I long for a world like that. And God said, but I had to give you the choice, but that's what you chose. And so sin entered our world. And now it's in that moment. Now God has to deal with it, right? God didn't just turn away and be like, Adam and Eve, you messed up. I'm out of here. That's not what God did. Why? Because God loves them, right? When you mess up, does everybody just abandon you and leave you and say, you know what? I'm done with you. I hope you have somebody in your life that loves you even when you mess up. I'm thankful that I have a wife that loves me, even when I mess up a lot. God didn't go away, but he has to deal with it. And so let's talk about that. So God goes to the serpent first, you understand, because he knows where it started. It started with Satan. God knows where to start. And so God starts, and again, the serpent are there, there, is there. Adam and Eve are there. They're all three there. Everybody who is guilty of this whole thing, everybody's there. And he talks to them in front of everybody, right? So the serpent's there, and, which is Satan, and then Adam and Eve. And God says to the serpent, okay, first of all, snake, you're going to crawl on your belly for the rest of your life because you decided to let Satan use you in this way. Now, here's a question that I have. This is just a weird thought. Have you ever wondered what the snake did before God cursed it to crawl on the ground? Like, what was it doing before? Was it sprinting? Was it running? Was it flying? I don't know. Seriously, like, I've never had that thought before. As I was studying this, my mind went there, and I was like, wait a minute. What was the snake doing before this? Right? You're now cursed to crawl on your belly. Man, I kind of wonder what the snake was doing before that. That's kind of cool. Okay? But anyway, now it crawls on its belly, right? And so he speaks to the animal first, and then he switches. In verse 15, God starts speaking directly to Satan. And I want you to hear this. It's one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Genesis 3.15. Listen to what God says to Satan. He says, And I will cause hostility, conflict, between you and the woman. And between your offspring, he's talking about demons and the spiritual evil powers in the world. Now, your offspring, demons, and her offspring. And then, catch this, he says he, he's now talking about a very specific offspring of this woman, of Adam and Eve. He will strike your head, he's talking about Satan's head, and you will strike his heel. Now, this is what's really interesting This verse is described 
as the Proto-Evangelium. It's a really cool, really big word called Proto-Evangelium. Now, if you go to seminary, you will learn this word, all right? Uh, I would say it's not all that helpful except for what I'm about to explain to you, okay? Uh, really, it's just a really big word. I don't know why we make things more complicated. It would be easier just not to use this word and say what I'm about to say, okay? But proto-evangelium is a combination of two Greek words, and I want to give those two Greek words to you. The first Greek word is protos. The Greek word protos means first. Okay? So the first word is first. The second word, evangelion, it looks like evangelion, but it's evangelion in uh, Greek. The second word means first good message or good news. So you put them together, and I just said it, first good news, first good message. The first gospel is in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible. Now, when I say gospel, I mean Jesus. Do you realize that Jesus is mentioned not by name, but in theology in the third chapter of Genesis? Technically, he's actually mentioned in the first chapter of the book, but I'm not going to get into all that right now. But he's mentioned in the first book right away. And I want you to catch the gravity of this. This is huge. In the moment that sin entered into the world, God says to the first two humans and to Satan, listen, I had to give you the choice because otherwise it's not real love. And so I gave you the choice, but you messed up. But I knew you were going to mess up. Have you ever had anybody say that to you? Like, yeah, I knew you were going to do that. How many of you are like, thank you for that? You're really grateful for them saying, yeah, I knew you were going to mess up, and I let you. Thank you for doing that. Like, that's wonderful. But sometimes, what do we learn the most from? Our pain, our mistakes, don't we? We don't like it, but we do. And so God says, I already knew this was going to happen, and guess what? I already have a plan. I already have a promise for you. And you just, I just read it in Genesis 3.15. What's the promise? The promise from God is this. In the future, there's going to be offspring of the, these two humans, Adam and Eve. If you track the lineage all the way for a long time, thousands of years, eventually you get to Jesus. And God said, the offspring is going to crush your head, Satan. You know what he was talking about? He's talking about the crucifixion on the cross, resurrection from the grave, defeats Satan once and for all. A crush or a blow to the head is fatal. What God is saying in that moment to Satan, Satan, I already have a plan. You've already lost. Thanks for trying. God says, I have a promise. There is a Savior coming in the future who's going to crush Satan's head. Now you're going to strike his heel. He's talking about crucifixion. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to have a blow against Jesus. You're going to kill him, but just for three days. It's just going to be a heel wound, and then Jesus is going to come back, and your head's going to be crushed, Satan. It's a promise. God is making a promise to you and to I that his love is unconditional. See, God's love is unconditional, isn't it? 
He didn't, he didn't wait for us to like, he didn't wait for Adam and Eve to get it right. He said in that moment, as soon as sin came in, Jesus, God said, I have this guy named Jesus, his offspring, that he's going to be the offspring and he's going to be the savior of the world. He's going to save you from your sins. This whole problem that you just brought in, I've already got the solution. The promise is there. It's done. God's love is unconditional. It's always going to be there. In fact, I love what the Apostle Paul says in, a, in uh, the book of 1 Timothy. He's writing to a bunch of people and he's saying, uh, he's telling them how they have to pray for everybody, even your enemies. How many of you pray for your enemies? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many, how many of you do? How many of you pray for those people on social media that they, you just, man, as soon as you see their no- name pop up, you know it's going to be negative. Like, you don't have to read it. You're like, uh, there's a couple of people on my social media radar I'm like, mm, I don't even know. I'm, there, I'll be honest, sometimes when I see certain people's names, I scroll past them as fast as possible. I'm like, I just don't even want to, I'm not going there. Because I know where it goes. It goes in a deep, dark hole. And I'm not going there. God wants us. Timothy, in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul is saying, you should pray for everybody. And in the midst of that, he goes on to say this. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, to pray for everyone. God, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Jesus paid the price on the cross and resurrected from the grave. Why? To pay the price for your sin. And to pay the price for my sin, for everyone's sin. His love is unconditional. But here's the deal. And we mix these up sometimes. This is a really important distinction. God's love is unconditional. It's offered to every single person everywhere. But his salvation is conditional. It requires something from you. God's love is offered to you. That's not a question. The offer is there. The, The price has already been paid. Everything's done. But his offer of salvation is conditional. It requires action on your part. Something from you. A promise back. The promise has been given but you have to return something. Let me kind of get into that. So you remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross? He's there. He's been on the cross for several hours. He's been there for a long time. And and we have an eyewitness account, the Apostle John. We think, we're not sure, but he's probably, at least from Scripture, he's the only of the 12 disciples that was actually physically there at the cross. The others had scattered We don't know. Maybe they were there, but we know that John was there because he has an eyewitness account and he says he was there. He doesn't even give his name. He was embarrassed that he didn't want to let people know that he was there, so he didn't use his name. And so he said something else, but he was there. And so he writes this eyewitness account of what happened when Jesus was on the cross. Somebody offered him a sponge for something to drink because he was really thirsty because he'd been hanging on the cross for a long time. And I want to read for you what John says happened in that moment. John 19.30, when Jesus had tasted it, again, the drink and the sponge, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which means he died. 
Now let me ask you this question. Why did Jesus say it is finished? It's done. Close the book. Finished. Why did he say that? What Jesus is saying in that moment is he's saying, going all the way back thousands of years ago, when Jesus, when God, and Jesus knew this, of course, when God said to Adam and Eve and to Satan, I promise you there's a Savior coming that will save you from your sins. That's going to give you freedom from your sin. Jesus is saying, it is finished. It is done. The promise has been fulfilled. God's promise is done. There is no more required of God. It is done. It is finished. But it requires something from us. So the question I would have for you is, why do we spend so much time and energy this season celebrating Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. And some of you are maybe hoping to get the story of Jesus riding in on the donkey. I've preached on that story a lot. I chose not to today. I'm sorry. All right? Talk about disappointment, right? But we have palm branches up here if you want to take a picture and say, hey, I was there on Palm Sunday. Good. Palm Sunday is important. Yes, it's good because if Jesus never enters in victoriously into Jerusalem, then he's not going to be crucified at the end of the week on Friday. So it's important. I get it. But why do we spend time a whole week celebrating Palm Sunday and then Good Friday, his crucifixion, and then next week, one week from today, we're going to be here and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, which is the biggest, most momentous event in history. And you and I have nothing to believe in unless we believe in that, what we're going to celebrate next week. And so next week is going to be a very big deal. But why do we make such a big deal of it? Because it proves God keeping his promise to you. And the question now becomes, what does your promise need to be back to him? What does your promise need to be? Well, let's talk about that real quick. Let me read for you probably two of the other most important verses in the Bible. I'm getting on a lot of the important ones today. John 3, 16 and 17. Listen to what it says. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone... Now, let me just pause on that word. How, how many people does it say? How many? Everyone. Do you know what that means? If you go... That's from New Testament, right? So this was originally written in Greek. You know what the original Greek means? Everyone. It's really simple. God's love is for everyone. Whether you live in Wanakee, whether you live in Mississippi, whether you live in Florida, whether you live in Africa, whether you live in China, whether you are a scientist that works in Antarctica nine to ten months out of the year, it does not matter who you are, where you come from, what you were raised on, does not matter. God's love is unconditional and has been offered to you. Done. It is finished. But, two words later, is the condition. So that everyone who does what? Believes. You guys are on it today. I love it. Everyone who believes will not perish, will not die, but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. This is the biggest promise in the history of promises. 
What God is saying to you and to I is that if you simply believe that Jesus died for you, for your sins, and believe that he rose from the grave for you, you will be saved. You will not have to spend eternity separated from God. That's a big promise. And he kept his end. Now the question is, will you keep yours? You simply need to believe. Now, here's the truth. What does believe mean? Because I think that sometimes we get tripped up in this. We sometimes think that believe is an intellectual exercise. We sometimes think that we can simply say, yeah, I believe in God, and that's good. We're done. And I'm here to tell you, I think that gets salvation on the lowest level, but I think God wants more than that. I think belief is more than an intellectual exercise. I think it should actually impact and infect every aspect of our lives. Let me try to illustrate this. Uh, so Laura and I, uh, this June, so like two months from now, we're going to be celebrating 20 years of marriage. That is awesome. Uh, it also tells you how old I am, right? So that's, that's really cool. Um, but we're going to celebrate 20 years. Now, at the beginning, so to that, what this means is almost 20 years ago, what did we do? We made vows to each other, didn't we? And vows are simply a fancy wedding word for promises. We made promises to each other publicly in front of other people and, more importantly, before God, that... Laura and I would be faithful to one another for the rest of our lives. We made a promise that we are going to love each other for the rest of our lives. We made a promise to each other that we're going to believe in each other for the rest of our lives. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be with you in sickness and health and in good times and in bad. I'm going to be with you no matter what. I believe in you. I love you. I'm with you. We made that promise 20, almost 20 years ago. Now, let me ask you this. Is it enough just to say that I believe in Laura? I believe in you. I love you. Let's say that that's all I did. Let's say I only say I love you and I believe you. But let's say, just for sake of argument, let's say that I say I love you and I believe in you, and then I disappear for a year or two. I just decide, you know, hey, I love you and I believe you, and then I disappear one morning. I'm gone. Right? And I go travel the world and I get another job somewhere else. I'm in another continent. Right? And I'm living my life. I'm doing my thing. I'm like, man, this is awesome. And then uh, let's say a couple years later, I come back to Laura and I'm like, hey, you know what? I just wanted you to know. I wanted you to remember. I love you and I believe in you. And then I disappear again. A couple years later, I come back and be like, hey, remember, I believe in you. I love you. Now, let me ask you this. How do you think that will go? All of you know. You know it won't go. It, it ain't going nowhere, right? Because at some point, I'm going to come back, and she's not going to be there because she's like, uh, I don't believe you, <laughs> right? But can we just be honest for a minute? I think that's exactly how we treat God. I do. 
I think we do a little perfunctory like, yeah, I'll show up on Easter. Probably Christmas. Maybe a couple other times if it works out in my schedule. I'll pray as long as I have time. I mean, I'm pretty busy. I've got a lot on my plate. I mean, job, kids, sports. Have you ever had kids in sports? I just got back from Oshkosh at 11.45 last night. Yeah, that was fun. I, I literally drove Jackson's buddy, who also plays soccer with him, to the wrong house. I was so tired when I got I kid you not. I was on the right street. I was only one house over, but I started turning, and he just very politely, he said, uh, next one. Thank you. I kid you not. That was, that was like 12 hours ago or whatever it was. We treat God as if, like, I'll believe in you, I will love you, but as long as it fits in my life, as long as it fits in my schedule, because if it doesn't fit in my schedule, I'm sorry, God, I'm just too important. I don't know, but I'm, I think Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave for more than that. And what I would say is, if that's how we treat God, you know what that is? That's not a relationship with God. You know what it is? That's called a religion. <laughs> and I, I'm, just, I'm just here to tell you right now, can I be the first to say, I want nothing to do with religion. I'm, I'm not joking right now. I'm serious. I want nothing to do with religion. Because you know what religion is? Religion is a list of rules and a list of beliefs. Believe these things, do these things, don't do these things, and hopefully at the end, the scale is balanced in your favor and you're good. I don't know about you, but that's, that's called fear also. Because if you're like, you get to the end of your life and you're like, oh man, I don't know, I should do some more good because it seems like the scales are out of balance. I should probably go to church at least 10 more times this year because, man, it feels like. Right? It's a religion and not a relationship. And Jesus does not want a religion. He wants a relationship. He wants you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to reassure you. He wants to guide you. He wants to love you. He wants to direct your path. He wants to be with you every day, not just in, on Sunday morning in a gym at a church. He wants to be with you tomorrow morning when you're on your way to work. He wants to be with you when your coworker that drives you insane is talking to you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with you when you're taking that test that you're scared of taking this week because it's geometry or it's algebra or it's Spanish. And maybe you're like, oh, I don't get Spanish. Whatever it is, God wants to be with you in all of that because he wants a relationship with you. And let's be honest, I committed to Laura, I believe in Laura, but I haven't done it perfectly. So you're not going to do this perfectly, that's okay. But you do need to do it faithfully. You need to be honest with yourself. Are you, giving, are you kind of throwing up tokens to God and be like, God, I'll show up every now and then. I'll pray when I have time. I'll get the Bible out when I think about it. Or are you trying to find how you can incorporate God into every aspect of your life? Because that's where he wants to be daily. I have to recommit to Laura every day. Now, let's be honest. I don't like 
find an altar and be like, okay, let's kneel down. I'm gonna, let's redo our vows today, right? But in every sort of way, I might say I love you or I might, you know, come back and do something for her or what, I don't know, but there's a there's hundred thousand different ways that I recommit to Laura every day. I'm here. I love you. I believe in you. The promise is still true that I made 20 years ago. The same is true with God. Are you still in? It's good that you say you believe in him, but does your life prove it? Does it show it? So you guys remember how I started today? Remember the story, the dinner table? I want to come back to that. Do you remember how I left it? My brother and I, we were complaining. We didn't like what we saw in front of us. We believed we had a right to have something different on the table. We were wrong. We were complaining about it because we thought something good was being withheld from us. And so mom leaves the, the table in tears, right? Rightly so. She should have. She probably should have been stomping out and angry. I don't know, maybe you did. <laughs> I don't remember fully. But what I know is, what happened next is, my dad was very clear with us. He made sure we knew he was disappointed in us. And then the next thing he made sure of was that we made it right. And you know how we made it right? We did what Pastor Nick talked about last week. We confessed. We confessed that we were wrong. Right? Now, confession might sound like a really strong word in that moment, but honestly, you know what confession is? Confession is simply saying what you did wrong out loud. That's what confession is. And so we said out loud what we did wrong. We confessed. We repented. We turned away. You know what we did? We ate that food. In other words, we weren't going to complain about it anymore, and we were going to be thankful for what we were eating. We repented of our behavior, and we apologized to mom. We said we were sorry for what we did. You know what happened as a result of that? My father told us he's disappointed and he made sure that we made it right. Why? Because when we did that, it restored the relationship of the family and we had a great dinner. The relationship had been broken. It had been destroyed. It had been hurt. And so something had to be paid. The same is true with God. When we chose to go against God, we brought sin into our life, which pushes the relationship away. And the only solution for that is to believe and accept Jesus on a daily basis for your life. God's promise is already there. You simply need to return the promise and say, I believe. And that's why we're here today. So in just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the promise being finished through something that we call communion. We're going to commune with God. And this is a very big deal. And we're doing this because Jesus told us to do this. So let me just kind of talk about how this works at Northridge because you might be wondering like, well, where's the stuff? Like, what do we do? We're in a gymnasium. It's kind of weird. Let me just say this. You can take communion anywhere. Because you know who it's between? It's between you and God. It's between you and God. 
This is a vertical thing, not a horizontal thing. This is a this thing. And what we're going to do is, this is kind of how we're, we're going to do this. So at Northridge, this is really important. We practice open communion. Okay, what that means is that if you're here, like a lot of you are visiting here, you're here for the first time, that's awesome. You do not have to be a member of our church to take communion. That would be silly. I know I'm speaking against some other denominations right now. I'm just saying that's, that's silly. That's dumb. You don't have to be a member of, of our church because this is not between you and the church. This is between you and God. And so we practice open communion so that it, all we ask is that you believe in Jesus and you want to follow Jesus. And so you're going to commemorate that today by taking communion. And so when we get to this moment, in a moment, I'm going to pray. And after we pray, the, the worship team is going to be up here and they're going to go through one song. We're going to sing one song. It's an amazing song. One of my favorite songs. And we're going to sing this song. And during that song, communion is open. All right? Which means you're free to move and go back. So in a moment, when we do all this, um, there's going to be stations. And when I say stations, I mean people. And there's going to be people lined up all around the back of the room. And they're going to be having, they, they have the juice and they're going to have the bread. Okay? And sometime during the song, when you're ready, not, you don't, we don't have to all at the beginning right away rush back there. Just take your time. It's between you and God. But when you're ready, make your way out of your seat, go to the back, and then just take the bread, dip it into the juice, and then take and eat. Okay? And if you want to stay back there and pray, if you want to go to the back wall and pray, if you want to go somewhere else to pray, if you want to come back to your seat and sit down and pray, even though I know we're going to be standing and singing, just do that. This is between you and God. And so, here's what we're going to do. By the way, if you are gluten-free, there's a table over there next to one of the two of the people that are going to be standing over there. Just take that spot right over there on this side. So my left, kind of your right. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Take this opportunity to ask yourself where you are with God. Where are you at? Your spouse can't help you with this. Your kids can't help you with this. Your parents can't help you with this. This is you and God. This is between you and Jesus. Do you believe in him? Do you believe that he died on the cross for you? Do you believe that he rose from the grave for you? If you are living that way, I want to I encourage you, take this time to rejoice. Seriously, celebrate that fact. And this song talks about it praising Jesus' name for what he did. Rejoice. But maybe you're here and what you realize today is you need to confess. You've been living apart from God for maybe a long time or maybe just recently. And this is an opportunity for you to bring your sins and bring your confession to Jesus. It doesn't have to happen anywhere else but you and Jesus. That's why Jesus died. Because he's your mediator between you and God. So take this time to honestly ask yourself, where am I at with God?
So Jesus was at the final supper, the last supper on Thursday night with his disciples. And he did something that was very different that they had never seen before. He instituted the very first communion. Let me read for you what happened. Matthew chapter 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, Take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant. By the way, you know what the word covenant means? Promise. <laughs> which confirms the promise between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Rejoice, confess, or both. But now is our time to celebrate Jesus' death on the cross, which pays the price for our sins. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here in this moment, in this space, to worship you. The promise that you gave to us, God, all the way back with the first two human beings is still true today. You said, I am sending a Savior who will save all people who believe from their sins. And all we have to do is say, we believe, yes, Jesus, I'm in. You said it is finished. The promise has been offered. It is there. It is done. But now today, in this moment, may we celebrate and remember and rejoice over the fact that you, yourself, sacrificed yourself on the cross. You went through pain and torture and death for us so that we could have freedom from sin. And so I pray in this next moment, these next few moments, God, would you rule this place? Help people to be honest with you in this moment. If they need to confess something to you, I pray that they would do it right now. If they simply need to rejoice over the fact that you died for them and rose for them, I pray that they would do that right now. And as we sing your praises, may you get the glory and the honor for what you have already done for us. We pray this and we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.